One time my grandmother, my cookum, said to me, you know what's great about a moose? It's just a moose. That's all the moose wants to be. Just a moose. The moose never wakes up in the morning and wishes it was a deer or a rabbit or a beaver. The moose just wants to be a moose. I think she was trying to tell me that I should learn to be comfortable in my own skin. I think she was trying to help me see that I was already who I was going to be. I just had to be willing to step into myself as a young Ojibwe person. Here at Canada Land Back, simply, we just want to be a moose that is happy with being a moose. Calling our show Canada Land Back comes with a certain amount of responsibility, a certain amount of expectation, both from ourselves and our audience, and it comes with a hell of a big job to do. Present compelling, complex, and nuanced stories from Indian country out to the world. In order to do that, our team of writers, producers, journalists, and storytellers need to get comfortable with being a moose. Is this metaphor working? Anyway, in developing this show, we met as a community of Indigenous journalists and storytellers. We gathered a few dozen folks from across this place now called Canada, and we sat and talked. There was discourse, debate, and in the end, maybe more questions than answers. But what was clear was that the team at Canada Land, the Monday show you listen to every week, they were ready to turn over the keys to their podcast feed. And we, as a team of Canada Land Back, are ready to get down to work. We're going to start with six episodes over the next six months, and we'll bring you on the ground, in the community, and we'll tell great stories. As journalists, we look to challenge ourselves and our own ideas of what Land Back is and is not. And we hope you, the listener, gain a broader understanding of how dynamic the Land Back movement is. Today on the show, we hit the ground running. You'll hear from a group of masterminds discussing what Land Back means to them and what the future holds for this growing movement. Then we'll take you to a land-based education program on the Dene homelands in what is now the Northwest Territories, up in Denende. But first, we want to hear from you. Email us with your feedback, story ideas, and comments. We will read every single email. You can reach us at landback at canadaland.com. To kick off the birth of this endeavor, we've brought in Gusineo Williams, a spoken word prodigy who is part of the Mohawk Nation, Wolf Clan, from Six Nations Territory. Gusineo's name translates to a good name. Through poetry, she turns the challenges and triumphs of Indigenous peoples, including her own lived experiences, into tools for social change. Here is Gossineo now. Everything in me just wants to scream. But my mouth is dry, too many sacred words, unspoken cheeks, Stuffed with English, our eyes are wet, spilling trauma like flooding rivers, minds spinning with the horrors our ancestors won't let us forget. You see, my people have been pulled apart, language and culture ripped from our bones. It has left our community on the bottoms of the shoes of those Indian agents. It's hiding in the cracks of the walls of every residential school across this country. 
is buried deep in the earth with those bodies. It's stuck at the back of throats, under tongues, between teeth. It's in the saliva, the sweat and the heartbeat and we are trying. So we sit together in the rubble of ourselves, singing and digging in the earth, sucking marrow from the bones, searching in trees and in the stars, planting new seeds to be sown. We are brave and relentless, but we shouldn't have to be. We shouldn't have to fight this hard to be an Indian. So we are saying, give it back, give it all back so we can know ourselves and our children can live filled with the stories, culture, and love so we can find the glory. Give it back. Give it all back. Our ancestors are calling us. The land is calling us. Can't you hear her? You just heard an original piece by Gossineo, made specifically for our show, Canada Land Back. More information about Gossineo is on our site. Please check out her work. So... Canada Land is all about telling gripping stories, unmasking Canadian myths, and trying to provide complex analysis of media and current events. Telling stories about Indigenous people and Indigenous communities is a big part of that. But it's important to go beyond simply telling other people's stories. It's necessary to create platforms for Indigenous storytellers to tell their own stories. That's easier said than done. To help us get different perspectives for this episode, we asked many Indigenous people from different nations to lend their voice and share what land back means to them. You will hear these voices throughout all segments. Let's start now. Land back means going back to our traditional hunting grounds, traditional territories where our parents, grandparents and ancestors hunted for a long time. Land back can mean building a cabin in those territories. Land back can mean going fishing, hunting in those areas to make sure that we are using the land. That land gives us the identity. Land gives us the language. Land gives us where we come from. Land gives us the teachings that have always been there. My personal understanding of land back is the restoration and reclamation of connection and stewardship of the lands and territories that our ancestors, current communities, and future generations care for and occupy. And I also want to recognize that land back can be interpreted differently for each Indigenous person, but I ultimately think the end goal is all connected. Land back also includes our sovereignty when it comes to our bodies and our health. You cannot disconnect the body from the land. The health of the land reflects the health of the people. When these lands are sick, it is us who ultimately pay the price. Our food and water systems that we rely on survive on become sick. Our traditional medicines that we use to heal ourselves become sick. Our most vulnerable become sick. When colonialism weaponized our lands to maintain their agenda of genocide, that loss was felt through our people for many generations, and we still feel it. 
All in all, land back is reclaiming everything settler colonialism tried to take and destroy from us. Well, what I hear is in land back is like give us the land back, not like give us like not give us these small things like don't give us these small things like a little bit of money, a little bit of that. Like the land back is what really matters is because that was originally ours before all of the settlers. Thinking about what land back is can get complicated, but sometimes it's as simple as getting back to the land. That's what folks are doing at a land-based education program in the north called Dashinta. It's a program that's changing the way people obtain an education and connects youth and elders through indigenous knowledge and traditions. Based in Yellowknife, it's the only fully land-based university accredited program in the world. Dashinta is a sacred learning space mandated to serve Indigenous people, and it's not only revolutionizing curricula and research, but it's transforming lives. To tell this story, we got help from Morgan Seta, a Dene media coordinator at Dashinta. Miigwech, Morgan. Yeah, just keep going. Once you get to the middle, there's going to be like two bones that meet. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then you just got to go like right through. It's been so amazing to like eat so much different yeah. kinds of food. Go a little bit closer to my right. mouth and just put your finger right I in there. Sydney you want one, What you're hearing are students and children learning how to harvest and cut fish. Their teacher is Irene Sangris, a Dene elder who is described as a powerhouse at Dashinta. Harvesting fish is just one part of the programming at Dashinta. Partnered with the University of British Columbia, Dashinta offers students an exceptional, intensive land-based program in Dene. It was born in response to those who hadn't been given the opportunity to pursue post-secondary education. That's when a collective of academics, elders, leaders, and northern students got together to create Dashinta. Not only does it keep learners close to home, but it's rooted in family-centered education and Indigenous knowledge. We spoke to Kyla Lesage on the Vuntut Gwich'in Nation from Old Crow, Yukon, and Anishinaabe from Garden River, Ontario. Kyla earned some of her UBC degree at Dashinta in 2018. Now she works there as a land-based academic and regional outreach coordinator. When I was at UBC, I was doing a political science and Indigenous studies degree. I was having a really hard time connecting with my degree, and I was having a hard time learning about my people without actually having someone there that knows it and has lived it um, and really was able to give me those experiences and teachings. Um, And so I was almost ready to drop my minor. I was like, I can't do this. This is a really difficult program. I'm just not fulfilling it, my needs and my wishes of being able to connect with my background. I had a hard time with papers and writing academically at UBC. And then as soon as I was in the bush, I was cutting fish, getting A's. And so instead I was cutting fish and then I was able to take all of these teachings and connect it with um, terms like self-determination, decolonization, reclaiming land, reclaiming language, revitalization, which I never could identify these terms or define them when I was at university. Um, And then at Tachinta, I was living it. So I was living on an island, um, learning traditional ways. Um, So today we're going to, a group of us are gonna go check muskrats 
Um, it's not going to be the students. It's just going to be Tenshai, Ryan, Sydney, Elise will go. Gordy's coming with his skidoo. So we'll have Archie, John, Gordy, and then if we need another skidoo, we have my skidoo, and that's it. Um, and then at 9 a.m., we are going to check the net with the students and the kids. So they're going to check the net, pull the net at 9, and then they're going to fix fish in here with Irene. I'm going to be leaving right after lunch because I can't not eat food. <laughs> I'm not going to start cooking. <laughs> so, <laughs> one last meal. <laughs> I haven't bought groceries in so long. Um, so I'm going to be leaving at 1 to Delaney. This is Kyla leading a group of students, families, and participants at Mackenzie Island, wrapping up three weeks of fishing camp. Before Dashinta, Kyla wasn't able to do this. Um, I think it changed my life in many ways. Um, I was never able to talk in front of people or able to share, or I never felt like I had a voice. And so I was always really quiet at university or really quiet, even though I'd be going out to like protest, to protest pipelines when I was at university. But the Chinta changed my life as it really changed who I was. People that knew me at university don't recognize me now. so. Not only did I feel like a change, but everyone else saw a change in me when um, I went through Dechinta. So it's definitely transformed everything that I thought. I now do speeches in front of lots of people and I'm able to share my experience and share what it means to be a Gwich'in and Anishinaabe woman, learning and living on the land with elders and community members. But it's given her more than just a voice. Um, I think Dechinta was like foundational for my educational journey, but then I found that it not only helped me finish my education, but it reconnected me to traditions and language. Um, growing up, my family never grew up with our traditions and language. My grandmother was a residential school survivor, so we were removed and my family was removed from our land um, of Old Crow really young. And so I never grew up with anything and I always knew that there's that piece of me missing. and. Um, I wanted to be that one in my family to reclaim that and relearn. I went on my first hunting trip with Dechinta with elders in the barren lands where we got caribou for the community. Um, I've recently, just over the past program we had, I learned how to trap muskrats. I know how to set a fishnet. Um, and I'm really able to use all these teachings um, and the language and be able to teach younger generations. Um, I've also reconnected with my own Gwich'in roots because of working at Dechinta. So. I could see that I was growing and um, Dechinta provided me a space to grow. Faculty and staff include elders, traditional hunters and trappers, land instructors and professors, such as Glenn Coltart, a Dene professor in the First Nations and Indigenous Studies program at the Department of Political Science at UBC. Glenn is also a co-founder at Dechinta. And there are more forces at Dechinta too. My name is Leanne Bitasmuse Simpson. I am a faculty and board member at the Dechinta Center for Research and Learning. Leanne tells us more about what makes Dechinta a unique place. One of the biggest barriers for post-secondary education for Indigenous women 
was childcare. And so that's one of the innovative parts of our programming. Children and our staff bring their children and we provide a learning program on the land for children and youth. The second thing is that it's land-based. So in our programming, the land is, is the teacher and we take students out on the land in different formations and in the different regions that we work in for extended periods of time, anywhere from a week to six weeks, where we're living together as a learning community, where elders are present and embodying and modeling things like Dene law and ethics and practices. So things like trapping, hunting, making medicine, um, moose hide tanning, caribou tanning, um, sometimes sewing and creative practices and uh, fish. Not only did students and family members learn how to harvest and prepare fish at a recent camp on Mackenzie Island, they also packed in two accredited courses taught by Leanne herself. I taught two accredited courses with a number of co-instructors. The first one was on mapping and creative practice. And then the last course I taught was on gender justice. So we were looking at queerness, heteropatriarchy, colonialism, and how to build beautiful, joyful, resilient Indigenous families, communities, and nations. Deshinta receives most of its funding from the federal and territorial governments. Some funds have also been awarded by MasterCard and Canada Council for the Arts. I think one of the things that's really clear is that we are expanding to different regions in the North. And we're going to, I think, continue Hopefully, post-COVID-19, grow our presence and increase sort of the number of courses in other regions in the North. It's obvious Deshinta is working and is doing what it's meant to do. It's transforming lives for people like Kyla Lesage, and it's bringing generations of our people together. Deshinta has shown me that being on the land and going skidooing and showing people how to pick berries um, is also a way of living and I've really seen how that provides myself a living, but it also allows our elders to work and do what they love. I feel like since Tichinta and I found I've grounded where I feel I need to do and I'm able to connect with my own culture. I'm learning my own languages now and it completely shifted who I was and yeah, my dedication to the land and the culture. So land back is the non-metaphorical return of all Indigenous lands, and it requires the destruction of property, white possessiveness, and colonial paradigms of what is considered alive and dead, animate, inanimate, uh, sentient or non-sentient. It is the reassertion of the primacy of reciprocal relationships over domination, control, and rigid taxonomies. Land back is not just reaffirming the colonial property paradigm. Land back is not just about making sure Indigenous peoples own property, as though eventually this is going to put us on even footing with the settler colonial state. Land back is about restoring relationality with all of creation. When I think of land back, I think of us going back to the Indigenous communities to tell our stories, that that's what that means. I mean, you know, just to give you an example, in this area, in the Atlantic region, 
unlike other urban indigenous communities, a lot of our population is mostly in rural communities. A lot of our, our population still lives in uh, First Nation communities. And in order to tell those stories, I always have to travel to those communities. And, and that's the one thing that I really love and enjoy is going into um, you know communities. Anine, welcome back to Canada Land Back. Today, we're unraveling the word land back and what that might mean to us as Indigenous people and our nations. To help shed some light on these questions, I'm honoured to be joined by these three brilliant people who are producing magnificent work in their own homelands that grapple with that very question. What is Land Back? Joining me is Jada Gabriel-Pape, a Coast Salish woman from the Saanich and Sunamuk nations. Jada is a consultant, a curriculum designer, and is in the second season of creating her own podcast, but has also supported several Indigenous teams in decolonizing their own podcasts. Lakuluk Williamson Bathory, a Greenlandic Inuk performance artist based in Iqaluit, Nunavut. She is known for performing Oar Yernik, a Greenlandic mask dance, which she performs internationally. And Philip Brass, a hunter and land-based educator who serves as an Indigenous advisor with both the Nature Conservancy of Canada and the International Buffalo Relations Institute, where he works to reclaim and build buffalo herds. Of course, what you do isn't all that you are, so maybe I can ask you to tell us about your identities that are most important to you. Hello, friends and relatives. My name is Jada Gabrielle Pape Antha Wusselwat. My ancestral name is Wusselwat. I am from the Husetnich and Snonemuch nations on Vancouver Island, and I am the daughter of Maxine Pape, and my late dad was Art Pape. Hello, my name is Lakuluk Williamson Bathory. I live in Nakaluit on Baffin Island, uh, the capital of Nunavut, and I'm the mother to three children. Let's first talk about what it means to you personally. When you hear the term land back, how do you identify or relate to it? First of all, when we use that term, and it is used here in the Arctic, it also is accompanied by ocean back because we live on the coast and we are on the land as much as we are on the water. So if I was to take a, a gut reaction or a visceral reaction to that notion of land back, ocean back, it is food sovereignty first and foremost as in allowing ourselves, finding the means, taking back the ability to feed our communities and feed our families. Within the idea of finding and reasserting food sovereignty, you have sort of a trifecta that all come hand in hand with one another. Industrialization, climate change, and colonization are all the same thing for us. And the fourth being uh, religious conversion, all holding hands with one another. Philip, how do you relate to that term, land back? 
I guess I wrestle with it a little bit. I hear it used as a bit of a catchphrase in different contexts over the last few years. For myself, it's really multifaceted and it's layered, but I would call it rematriation of, of land to Indigenous nations and to restructure our, our governance processes in the way that decision-making is, is, is made uh, on both Crown land and, and private land uh, throughout different territories. I think beyond you know, the actual physical return or jurisdiction change, it calls upon Canadian society to, to make a shift in its own relationship to land and that which they call resources. Jada, where does your heart and mind go? It really brings me back to the name that we call ourselves, and we are Hualmoch, which means belong to the land. We are Hualmoch Mestayoch, and we are people who belong to the land. And that the return, you know, land back, it's about everything that the land and the waters and our ancestors hold. So it's the returning of our teachings, of our languages, of our children, of our life ways. I feel like land back is a prayer, that land back is our way home to ourselves. Jada, you led us through our uh, pre-production meetings and our sort of our private gatherings amongst Indigenous journalists and storytellers. And I think at one point, one of the things that came up was this idea of land back equals lives back, right? It's us returning to ourselves as as we are and as we were and as we can be in, in the future. And um, if land was returned back to Indigenous people and resources were rightly shared, our lives are, are fully determined as a result. Is this a fix? Uh, Lakuluk, let's go to you. Inuit are some of the poorest people in Canada in terms of annual income, in terms of Western education attainment levels, in terms of health care, in terms of suicide rates. So you do a magical wand uh, and we have land back and we have the most excellent education that is based in our language, based on our land. We have the most equal and rich healthcare system in which anybody can give birth in their own communities. People can get their own bodies looked after by their own people. We have people who live fulfilling lives where they feel that they're contributing and they're being contributed to. And we're living in a place of equality. Philip, for you, imagining a scenario or a situation where, you know, the magic wand is waved, where does that lead us to? The instance of my territory, just southern Saskatchewan, we are living in the most altered ecosystem anywhere on the planet. We have about 8% of native prairie left. 92% of our native prairie in which our language, our spirituality, our way of life emerged from, 92% of it now is genetically modified canola fields. It has been obliterated. And that is directly reflected in our language loss and our cultural identity loss our youth suicide crisis, all of these things are rooted in ecological grief. But I think that it would be generations in the making to really reclaim that land-based way of life. I guess our ecological literacy to reemerge, that would take time. Jada, is this something that inspires you to think this way? For me, it's a return to our way of thought, to our way of knowing. And that is where all the goodness is. We have all of the teachings. We already have it. The roadmap is already there. I feel like it would mean, as Hualmoch Mestayoch, as Indigenous peoples, we would no longer be yearning, that we would be full. 
and the bounty of our people, the richness of our people. I imagine it and it, it almost makes me weep. As I kind of wade through this concept of land back, I think what we often do as Indigenous people is we end up centering colonization. You know, the work of decolonization often centers the colonizer. And what I wonder is, is if land back is doing that. Is land back just a plea to colonization itself? And, and what are we doing to really focus and center on ourselves and our own personal reclamation, our own personal liberation through this movement? You have to recognize, like Jada was saying, right beneath the surface is everything. But also right beneath the surface are tens of thousands of Indigenous children, literally right under the surface of the land. That is the genocide that we have all been facing. And it's, it's not pointing at the colonizers, which is obviously very easy to do. It is pointing to these children who are a part of every single one of us who are living in this colonized country called Canada. And so to... To acknowledge that tremendous loss and tremendous trauma in the very soil of the ground is also a part of the deep healing that each one of us has to do as individuals without pointing fingers. Philip, outside of the physical return of land to our people, what else would you like to see in this complex, diverse movement called Land Back? I really appreciate what, you know, like I said at the beginning of around, you know, the importance of food sovereignty that in Nehewa and in our Cree language, you know, we have this this term, you know, you know, walking a good life. And to walk that good life, we were literally following the buffalo. We were buffalo chasers for over 10,000 years. And it was that way of life of walking the land that we were able to build an intimate knowledge of all our relations within that ecosystem. And so, you know, working with youth today, I see it as preparing that generation for, for whatever they have to navigate and negotiate in the future. I remember my late father, who was a doctorate of psychology, and he was president of the Saskatchewan Indian Federated College in the 1980s. And there was a, there was a catchphrase at the time, it was that, you know, education, like Western education is our new Buffalo. And I remember not long before he passed away, in 1997, him saying, he says, you know, that doesn't make any sense at all. He says, the buffalo is our education, always was and always will be. Here on the prayer, we call it buffalo consciousness. When I think about allies and when I think about non-Indigenous communities that now have more access to materials to help them understand this conversation, and it seems to me that this is relatively new and that we are in some new territory when it comes to the way we are building relationships with other communities. So when talking about land back, how do we think settler Canadians, non-Indigenous Canadians can participate in this movement? I have to say in all honesty, there is limited room for non-Indigenous people in this movement because I think the privilege of being non-Indigenous and being invaders in our homelands, I don't think there's a real way that people have learned to de-center themselves. And it's not enough to just center Indigenous people. 
until people really deeply learn to listen in a good way and recognize that this notion of land back isn't jargon. We didn't just survive. We have been thriving and incorporating very deep knowledge of the lands, the waters, the ancestors, our spiritualities, our medicines. You know, like most people can't even grow a house plant. And to live <laughs> with the land in really good relationship and to feed our villages and our families. And then on top of it, have time and capacity to teach each other rites of passage ceremonies and marriage and birth and death ceremonies and hold on to it. Like, that's not romance. That's science. That's math. That's the most sophisticated people. And so how do we de-center all of those colonial mindsets in order to really push forward and center our ways? So no, for me, there ain't room for everybody. Uh, Jada, I don't know what we're going to do about the uh, estimated 10% of Canada land paid subscribers that are going to cancel subscriptions because you attacked them for not being able to grow houseplants. This is going to be a devastating, devastating episode on the bottom line for Canada land. <laughs> <laughs> hi, hi. Jada, Lakuluk, Philip, thank you for that. That was really, really beautiful. I had to stop you because, again, I, you know, I think we could do this forever. And I think that's what our ancestors want is for us to remain together, sharing space, dreaming, building, self-actualizing and doing so completely unapologetically. And thank you so much for bringing your good heart, your good mind to uh, Canada land back. And we appreciate each and every one of you. I think in a world where land back has already occurred, I think it's a very promising start to a shift in our general perception of our relationship with the land, uh, with the water and with like the people living on it. Definitely, if indigenous people had control over their ancestral land, it would be managed differently. I know for sure in other places where indigenous people have control over the land that they occupy. There is more biodiversity preserved there than like anywhere else in the world. I think it could be definitely a solution to some extent to some of the systemic problems confronting Indigenous people in the healthcare system with police, uh, with housing, with access to clean water. I think you have to, to some extent at least, involve the non-Indigenous people who live on the land because um, just like indigenous people do, they live on the land and their children and children's children will live on the land. So I think it's important not to diminish the role that non-indigenous people would still have to play in a world where land back has occurred. Imagine we magically got the land back today. There would still be homophobia. There would still be patriarchy. There would still be internalized colonialism. Land back to me is a necessary component, but not necessarily the whole picture of what we need to be resurgent communities. But for me, land back is like that critical piece that gets us to a place of futures beyond healing. It is necessary so that we can find the knowledge capacity needed to recreate, you know, all of what our worlds would have been if it was not for the interruption and violence of colonization. 
One way the team likes to think about this episode is that we're giving birth. Giving birth is a messy, painful, but also beautiful process. We want to take you behind the scenes of this delivery and share with you some of the discussions between myself, our senior producer, Anishinaabe investigative journalist Martha Troyan, and our Daycho Dene and Métis associate producer, Cassidy villabrun Barakas. All right, so we launched episode one. Uh, we gave birth to Canada Land Back. How does everybody feel about this? It's like a love letter. <laughs> yeah, it's it felt like it feels like a love letter to me. Um, which I think is appropriate because you know when when we sit around a campfire and drink tea and the sun's setting and you ask somebody you know where are you from like I think the first thing anybody that answers that question does is smile you know if you were to do an exercise and and say everyone close your eyes and you know you light a bit of sage and you got <laughs> some soft flute music playing in the background and you go okay now take your body and your spirit and your energy into imagine your favorite place on earth imagine it you can hear it are there waves lapping up on the shore is the campfire crackling in the background like you just feel warm like you can instantly transport there so yeah this feels like a love letter for sure I thought this was a birthing episode for sure, because that was one of the themes that we kind of thought about when we were first developing this episode. And it definitely felt like that it required a lot of breathing to get through. It was long. It's a labor of love for sure to get through this episode. And it's just so amazing hearing all these lovely voices throughout Canada and hearing their perspectives and thoughts on the matter. Oh, that's awesome. That's amazing. What did you think of the first episode of Canada Land Back? You can email us at landback at canadaland.com. We went out and asked the community to share their thoughts about our roundtable discussion. And here are some of those voices now. Tanse, Shawa, hello. My name is Inti Solomon Nemekinenemogastout. My father is Muiska from Colombia, and my mother is a member of the Cahewan Cree Nation. I was born in Bogota, Colombia, but I've lived most of my life in Winnipeg. I really enjoyed the panel. I enjoyed the, especially the diversity of Indigenous opinions on how land back should be carried out and what it means. Because Indigenous people are not a monolith, especially in Canada, where we have so much land and so many different peoples and stories and experiences. My name is Autumn LaRose-Smith. I am the current president of the Provincial Métis Youth Council and recently appointed Minister of Youth with the Métis Nation Saskatchewan. The thing that I noticed was missing right off the bat was youth perspectives in that conversation specifically. I hope that they, Candeland and Candeland Back, move forward in, in bringing in youth voices. This is Elder Sam Achney Paniscom. In a place where we can tell our stories is good. In whatever media that we can tell stories. I think that's what, what is important right now is to is to get those stories out. And no matter uh, in, you know, in different media, however that we do that, I think that's important. And I think that it's important that we, we let uh, Canada know that we're still here. We've always been here and we never gave up our land. My name is Jessica Johns. I am Nehiao on my mom's side and English-Irish on my dad's, and a member of Sucker Creek First Nation in Treaty 8 territory in northern Alberta. 
I think it's important when we talk about land back that we are centering queer and trans and black indigenous voices because one of the biggest factors with the colonial violences, the legacy of colonial violence is um, this legacy of heteronormativity, heteropatriarchy, trans misogyny. Next time on Canada Land Back, we will take you into the eye of the storm, destroying Indigenous communities and lives from coast to coast to coast. We are living through the worst overdose epidemic ever, and Indigenous peoples are getting hit the hardest. Alcoholics and Narcotics Anonymous, the Red Road, and other zero-tolerance sobriety programs can work for people, but some say that they can still leave others behind. What kind of help is out there, and how might we push ourselves in this conversation to do better. We're going to explore what harm reduction is and how it can save Indigenous lives. This is a clip of a cultural coordinator from a northern community in the prairies taking the lead on some of this crucial work. Well, for one thing, we call a lot of our work a a people project, and that is to get rid of the colonial mentality. The work we do is primarily doing a lot of memory work. So a lot of the memory work that we do are with elders. And so we use a lot of our traditional methods. Uh, For example, we use our ceremonial resources like sweat lodge and and other uh, ceremonies like ghost dance and round dance and chicken dance and sun dance, etc. What we do is trying to recover a lot of what we lost through the dark age of the colonial period. And we try to show the characteristics and uh, that, that sustained our people for a long time. And also uh, reminding them that our health is, is, it has the foundation of land, you know, land-based uh, learning, land-based activity. A lot of our uh, identities created by this land associating with the land. Land back, life back. It's something I said in one of our pre-production meetings, and I haven't stopped thinking about it since. Land back is an individual and collective movement that centers Indigenous people's humanity rather than beg for it. Land back is literally a return of Indigenous lands and waters and skies to Indigenous peoples, But land back is also an idea held closely by Indigenous peoples. The closer we are to the land, the closer we are to ourselves. Land back is resistance. And Indigenous resistance is as old as the land itself. It comes in many forms. It comes in the form of anger, love, family. It's complex. For example, you can be angry at your family and still love them, right? Sometimes Indigenous resistance is public-facing and loud and in Canada's face and on the 6 o'clock news. The first time chiefs from my territory in Treaty 3 walked to Ottawa was in 1907. We can point to the Oka crisis, Elsa Booktook and Idle No More and other modern protestations that delivered Indigenous people's conflict with the state into people's living rooms and car radios. Sometimes, though, resistance is quiet and subversive. 
and grounded in love and kindness and compassion. Sometimes, resistance looks like an indigenous community relearning language. Sometimes, resistance looks like an indigenous mother homeschooling their children. Sometimes, resistance is ceremony. What we've tried to do today is provide a nuanced and complex look at a simple question. What is land back? And much to some listeners' surprise, I'm sure, there's no single answer. In fact, if you were to ask 100 Indigenous folks what land back means to them, I'm certain you'll get 100 different answers. One thing I will tell you as the host of this show, unequivocally, is that there are a few conversations this country has to have with Indigenous peoples as it pertains to a pathway forward in this country. Reconciliation presented this country a number of challenges it was not ready for. There is a political responsibility question that desperately needs to be answered by this country, the respective provinces, towns, and municipalities all across this land. How do we make things right through policy, legislation, through free, prior, and informed consent? Where is the space for Indigenous law to be practiced by Indigenous peoples in their homelands? And how does that intersect with the state? Please don't make me say nation to nation here. This, too, as a phrase, has essentially lost its meaning. Maybe most importantly, we do have a social responsibility question in this country as well. What do we do as a population of 30-some-odd million people to make this place a better, more safe, equitable, and prosperous country for all? You see, Land Back forces us to answer the social responsibility question through the political responsibility question, and vice versa. As an Indigenous person, I can tell you, I wake up every day, I put my feet on the floor, and I imagine, and I build, and I dream, and I love. Land Back. Life Back. Well, folks, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did making it. We want to hear from you. What did you think of our show? What are the stories that you want us to explore? And who are the people you think we should be talking to? Do you think we're missing something? You can drop us an email at landback at canadaland.com. We read every single email you send us. Canada Landback senior producer is Martha Troyan. Our associate producer is Cassidy villabrun Baracus, with additional reporting by Danielle Orr and Morgan Seta. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Tristan Capacchione is the technical producer. Special thanks to the folks who lent their voices and ideas to this episode. And I'm your host, Ryan McMahon. We'll talk to you all again very soon. Bamaapi, Nindinawe Maganaduk. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Danielle Paradis, contributing editor to Canada Land. Hello. Hello, Jesse Brown. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk about the news. Happy to be here. (laughs) 
It's a double political scandal for a former Alberta justice minister and a look behind the typically closed doors of backroom politics. Wow. Okay, Danny, uh, you're going to have to help me with this. Here's my understanding of this. Former justice minister got married. It's what this is a nice, wholesome start to the story for Jonathan Dennis. But then the press embarrassed him because he broke the COVID protocols for his wedding reception. And somehow word of that got to reporter Alana Smith, then at the Calgary Herald. All sounds like you're a pretty normal day in the political coverage of a, of a COVID world. But Justice Minister at the time, Jonathan Dennis, why? Who ratted on me? Uh, allegedly. I want to know how details of my wedding got to the press. And then allegedly hires like a hatchet man, like a political fixer to to seize, I don't even know how, to somehow obtain the cell phone records of the reporter to find out who the mole is, who the snitch is at his wedding reception. Is that the story? Yes, Jesse, that is the story. Jonathan Dennis hired David Wallace, who was a political fixer. He hired him to use his source contacts, the databases they have access to, which apparently is private cell phone communications in order to find out who snitched about his wedding. And and we, we should be very clear, he denies it completely. He denies it. Yes, Jonathan Dennis denies it completely. David Wallace uh, is out there saying this 100% happened. David Wallace, that name rung a bell for me. And I want to return to David Wallace in a moment because that's not the first time that we've encountered him. But let's get, let's get back to that because this is not the first bat crazy story out of Alberta politics in recent memory. I haven't gotten into this yet, but like, can you, can you fill in our listeners about this dark horse whiskey and the, <laughs> and the, and the background story there? Summer 2017, a cast of political operatives gathered to put the finishing touches on the plan to ensure a solid Jason Kenney victory in his bid to lead the UCP. There's so many things, it's hard to keep track. So, yeah, there is a story. We call it the kamikaze candidate here in Alberta. And it's the story of um, Jason Kenney being present for a man named Jeff Calloway in his leadership bid. So the idea was that in the summer of 2017, a bunch of political Alberta operatives are all sitting around Jeff Calloway's table. Apparently they're eating Indian food drinking alcohol. And this this is where they came up with the idea for Callaway, who was the a past president in the now defunct Wild Rose Party, to enter into the leadership race. And he was going to basically be the bad guy. He's going to be out there damaging the opponents. In this case, it was Brian Jean and some dark horse whiskey. Alberta Premium was exchanged. I mean, just to break this down, like Jason Kenney at the time, he's running to be the leader of the United Conservative Party. And his chief rival is Wild Rose leader Brian Jean. And he, he wants to like take real shots at Brian Jean, but doesn't want to get his hands dirty. Is that why? So then he, he convinces some other guy, Jeff Calloway, to compete against him for leadership of the UCP. But this was a kamikaze campaign that was destined for failure. It was never supposed to win. It was, it was engineered by Kenny and his team. And it was basically so that Callaway could take shots at Gene by proxy so Kenny wouldn't have to. 
Yeah, more or less. When you looked at the policy direction of, of Jason Kenney and Brian Jean, there was very little distinction between them. You know, they're both conservative. They have conservative policies. And so the only thing to do in that situation is to denigrate your opponent. And then he gives them a gift of, of dark horse whiskey as a little wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're the dark horse candidate. Here's her, like, thanks for taking one for the team. Here's here's a little token of my appreciation. That's the idea. Yes. And, and I guess where the scandal comes in is, as always, it's not so much the initial scandal. It's the cover up. When Jason Kenney was asked if he'd participated in conversations with Jeff Calloway, he had flat out denied it, said that that never happened. But now there's a lot of evidence coming out that he did. He knew he was there and he gave him whiskey. All right. I promised everybody that I'd, I'd circle back on David Wallace. And I had to like scratch my head and be like, why do I know that name? And I, I ran it against our own archives. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this guy. So here's it's, it's not a dissimilar story. We're going to go down a little bit of a digression here, but stay with me. Anti-feminist YouTuber vlogger Diana Davison <laughs> Uh, who had a channel called Feminism LOL, where she would assault feminism in various ways, but also hated me and had all these conspiracy theories about the Gameshi case. And at one point she put out a bounty, like, I will pay anyone who gives me information <laughs> leading to the arrest of Jesse Brown. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I don't know what the, what the politically acceptable and non-denigrating, like a, a lunatic, but with respect to people with, like, you know, anyhow. Can we say bad crazy? No, you can't say that. Allegedly? Oh, okay. That's who Diana Davison was to me. Here's a story that popped up where, you know, she she would champion various men who were being taken down unfairly by Me Too, and she was championing Patrick Brown. Well, what, what did we learn? Canada Land reported some time ago that she got paid $10,000 by a Patrick Brown associate as she was making these videos in support of Patrick Brown. Here's what Graham Gordon, reporter Graham Gordon, reported for Canada Land uh, at the time in 2018. Canada Land has learned that in March, Diana Davison received a $10,000 check of which she would keep just half from lawyer Joseph Villeneuve, a longtime friend of Patrick Brown and member of his inner circle. Davison was subcontracted by a political operative named David Wallace, who arranged for her to pick up the $10,000 check from Villeneuve that would then be split between the two of them. So here's David Wallace doing, like, plying his trade as a, I don't know what you call it, a hatchet man, fixer within politics. Here's another impolite term. They call it a rat f***ery. Dirty stuff that no one's ever supposed to be aware of, but in this case, allegedly doing it for Patrick Brown. And so, and, and the product being that there's a anti-feminist vlogger trying to rehabilitate Patrick Brown's reputation online, which only, you know, I can mock and, and, and laugh at, at these efforts, but then you look at where Patrick Brown is at right now, and I, I guess, uh, you know, whatever he was doing, uh, some combination of it worked. But that's what David Wallace was doing for Patrick Brown. I take this all as a whole for us to get into today, Danny, because it's like we're learning little greasy things about, like, specifically within conservative politics, how stuff gets done. It's not to say it doesn't happen within liberal party politics, but uh, it seems like the same players are popping up again and again with different provincial conservative scenes. Yeah, I mean, in Alberta, if you're paying attention, all of our old political players are back. Like it's 2016. We have Brian Jean, we have Danielle Smith, we have all of the old PC people that Alberta got tired of and threw out. And, uh, and then we also have Jason Kenney, we have Jeff Calloway. It's a, it's a real carnival of 
scary. <laughs> I, I'll admit to sleeping on it until recently. Do you ever like look at the rest of Canada and be like, guys, can you pay attention to this? Like it's it's really interesting, and it's uh really 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 um I don't know I don't want to say corrupt. I mean, should I say corrupt? Well, okay. So first of all, that's like a very Toronto centric mindset. Like, oh, I don't even notice. So no, we don't, we don't <laughs> need you to pay attention to us. We're not out here like begging you to look at our political scandals. But Alberta is the one place in the country where I think the politics are still interesting. But how do you know that you exist if we're not paying attention to you? Oh, Jesse, I'm sorry. Please proceed. Uh, things are heating up again because it looks like it, it, like it looks like that's it for Kenny. Well. Who knows? Honestly, that's a really hard call to make. We are in the middle of a leadership review, which was another amazing party infighting political intrigue situation where initially everybody was supposed to go to Red Deer and they had 15,000 people who were registered to attend. That's too many people to fit in Red Deer. I think Red Deer's going to be mad at me for that, but it's a small place. It's like a college town. So Kenny and ostensibly the people that were Signing up, we're furious at Kenny for his handling of COVID. Now, don't mistake that for thinking he didn't do enough because they were just mad about any restrictions being put on at all within that branch of the Conservative Party. Sometimes we call them the grassroots. They're, they're often uh, people who are affiliated with the old Wild Rose Party. So he switched everything to an online or to being able to vote by mail. And all of this means that all of these members who were, you know, highly motivated now have more people who can just kind of come in and register to vote. So all of that is his attempt to get the old social conservatives, which now look normal by comparison to the people that are furious about restrictions and often aligned with other far-right conspiracy theories. Bob Weber, who revealed this up uh, against this journalist, Alana Smith, whose cell phone records were allegedly obtained, now is with Canadian Press as well. He writes, Bloodsport, observers say that purported emails suggest the decline of Alberta politics. The current Alberta political culture is marked by intolerance of the perspective of political opponents and marked by the politics of personal destruction. I like the politics of personal destruction. <laughs> That's a quote from Chaldeen's Mensa, political science prof at McEwen University, who says that politics in Alberta have become a blood sport. The players will resort to any unsavory practices to sideline their political opponents. Of course, I'm uh, taking particular interest in the attack on the media. Like, holy they can get our cell phone records? Like for something as innocuous as reporting on like COVID protocols being broken at a wedding, like you can hire some guy to get my cell phone records? University of Alberta professor Lori Adkin quoted as saying that this smacks of intimidating the press, you think? I don't have much to say about the coverage itself, except I'm glad to be reading it. And what the hell is going on in your province? <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's almost always like this. We're used to it. I will also note that in Jason Kenney's speech to about 100 hand-selected members in Red Deer, he asked us not to compare him to the Almighty, but to the alternative. Right, right. Don't compare him to God. Okay, got it. <laughs> That's Shortcuts for this week. Danielle, thank you for joining me. Anytime, Jesse. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I can be emailed at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send. 
Danielle, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter. I'm still off for Lent, so I have a few more days to go. But you can scroll through the archive in the meantime, and I'll be back with my hot takes after uh, Easter Monday. I will be tweeting uh, vigorously throughout the Jewish holidays. You can go to our website, CanadaLand.com. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard, with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by SoCold, syndication by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. 